The Missed Encounter, One, A Disappointment, Part One. Bonjour, Monsieur Freud. No. Bonjour, Monsieur le Docteur. No. Herr Doctor. No, no. Uh, bonjour, Professor. No. Bonjour, Monsieur le Professor. Perhaps met would be better under the circumstances. Que penses-tu, ma tigresse? Mais non, not maître. For one must liberate oneself from the sournois, from the chains of convention, from the bourgeois morals that imprison us. And in order to do so, here's a reflection in mirror, for which I would heartily recommend the path of automatic writing to begin with. To write, yes, to write without thinking, to write without an inscription to a system of thought, letting the hand, my hand, holds up hand to mirror, be guided by the unconscious, my unconscious. Coughs, straightens, tie. Simone, where's my good jacket? You know, the one with... And then we may abstract the most idealistic elements from these founders of the critical modern spirit and carry them to conclusions even their creators never dared. Simone, malolotte, what do you think about this? Perhaps said archly, perhaps with a hint of tender irony. I will continue in that tone, I think, when I publish my article, but I hope it will not leave a distorted impression of what is yet to come when we leave Imst, mon coeur. Hmm. Cher maître, we both overthrow existing systems and attack repression in its various forms. Would you type that for me later, surrounded by our friend Simone? See how it spins before we leave for Vienna. Yes, I know it interrupts our honeymoon, Minette. Let your neat little fingers form my words, though on it more. I do not really want anyone to say that what is most interesting about me is not my unconscious, but my conscious. But on the other hand, your lovely little hands laugh, ma chérie, do not bypass my conscious mind in this case, even though permanent means of recording, like paper, can only be written on once, for they quickly become filled and need to be further supplemented. Later, I shall prepare something on writing machines, on something that may be infinitely receptive without all previous inscription being erased, that supplements perception before perception even appears to itself. How does this sound, mon amour? Cher maître, I have tried my hand at interpreting the hallucinatory and delusional phenomena of those evacuated from the front along psychoanalytic lines, as I have explained in our correspondence. And I have transposed certain features of the psychoanalytic method into my technique of literary composition that I advocate for all the arts. I must credit you with the discovery of the region of mental life repudiated by the stale realities of social conformity and with the restoration of one's residence in that forsaken paradise of fancy, sex, and poetry. What do you think about that, Chupinette? Oh, and this tie or that one? I will continue. I thought seriously about becoming a, psycho a psychiatrist, but I could not unequivocally decide to abandon literature. Our brains are dulled by the incurable mania of wanting to make the unknown known, classifiable. 
Ah, oui. There is the science of dreams, as well as the development of new metaphors. Should I mention this at once, mon trésor, or allow the conversation to weave its inevitable way to that royal, royal road makes an expressive gesture. I am well aware of the work of Henri de Saint-Denis or Vachide, but it may be impolitic to mention this. Poetry in the larger sense is never far from my mind, and as Paul, Pierre and Guillaume advised with their strong poetic stimuli when I decided to ban medicine or hesitates, does that sound tactless, mon ange? I'm enthusiastic, Met. I will say that to him, ma biche. That, at least, should be clear, non, gestures. And while many would not credit me with the superior powers of penetration and assimilation, it must be acknowledged that I have listened attentively, been quick to draw inferences, and to make deductions invested with particular importance ahead of others in the Paris literary world, if I may make so bold. I must say, yes, I will emphasize Ray's voice. I do not expect your assistance in the area of poetic communication, but to enrich the content of poetry by means that literary tradition would dismiss, by the Freudian method of free association, maître, turning the world of the spirit quite upside down. There's a pause now of some time perhaps a few days. Mais mon Dieu, mon chou, what a completely nondescript, even drab part of Vienna that was. Order me another Kleiner Browner doodoo. And nothing, rien de tout, about the interior of the house or its decor was interesting. Our own apartment resembles a museum of modern art, n'est-ce pas? Crammed with fine works which I've acquired, acquired from the artists, my friends, at bargain prices. The servant who opened the door to me wasn't even particularly pretty, and there is not enough to feed the tiniest report. I was made to wait in the shabby waiting room with a dozen patients. He is an old man without elegance. I tried to make him talk, ma crevette, throwing in the names of Charcot and Babinski, but he only spoke in generalities. It was a non-event, in brief, ma douce, and I am saddened. I am disappointed, ma pipette. I feel so rejected. Past that remaining part of your sash talk, mon sucre d'orge, I finish my punch krapfen. I will be able to write only the most disparaging count of the meeting, I fear. Part two, one, October 1921. Dear Jones, I'm sorry you should be suffering as I felt rather ill myself these last two weeks. I'm full of sympathy for you. I had a rather unusual visit last week from a young French poet. Despite having very little free time these days, I had been most touched by an earlier letter requesting an interview. Though I must say the young man has seemed to assume more than our previous slight correspondence suggested. I sent a note to his hotel proposing a rendezvous. The visit, I regret to say, was not a success for we lacked a common language. There was little relation between my work and his literary interests, and I fear I may have given the impression that I am not at all enamored of France. This may be true to some extent. My work has never been taken particularly seriously, 
there. I, I showed him the first translation into French of my five lectures on psychoanalysis. Much of what he say, say, had to say seemed to be rehearsed. He is part of a new artistic movement called Surrealism. I find it somewhat baffling. If I attempt to explain it, it would seem that they engage in experiments with psychic automatism in order to achieve the liberation of the unconscious in a technique similar to free association. Yet, I would consider that, in principle, it is a mistake to regard their so-called poems and works of art as direct manifestations of the unconscious, for they are highly shaped and processed by the ego, similar to the activities of dream censorship in dreams. They imagine themselves producing great works, but these are products of the unconscious, not the unconscious, of the conscious, not the unconscious mind, and they deceive themselves. I'm tempted to call their dreams dreams from above, intended only to make an intellectual point. Cordially yours, Freud. 2 December 1932. Dear Jones, my warm thanks for your letter. Perhaps you will remember that some t ten years ago I wrote you concerning a visit from a Monsieur Breton about whom you may have heard, for he is one of the leaders of Surrealism, which has been discussed in some quarters due to its proposed relation to our own research. The same Monsieur Breton sent me a copy of his book, Les Vars Communicants, in which he analyzes some dreams in extensive detail. I have read the book with care. There are a number of impertinences I find inexplicable. It is as though he seeks to catch me out in both factual error and ethical lapse. He goes as far as to insinuate that I have plagiarized some of his ideas about dreams. He is most critical of me, describing my relatively unlearned philosophic mind and reproaching me for my reticence about personal matters in my own dream interpretations. He suggests that I have reduced the importance of sexuality in unconscious life, sacrificing all I might have drawn from this to common, self-interested motives. On page 19, he reproaches me further for the omission of Johannes Bockert from the bibliography, writing that Bockert discovered the symbolization of dreams and that I have put his ideas to use. As you will remark, this is serious and contrary to my usual practice, if it is indeed the case. But no, it is not Bockert, but Klaus Scherner who discovered the symbolism of dreams, and both are cited. However, on further reading, I felt I should write again to Monsieur Breton to explain that the French edition was taken from the seventh German edition, and that after the fourth German edition, the care of the bibliography had been handed over to Otto Rank, who made an excusable error in view of the fact that Bockert was not the one whose authority is to be considered in this matter. Monsieur Breton replied to me at some length. I did feel he could have been more succinct. I imagine that this is the surrealist literary style. I must admit I know very little about it. He took into consideration my particular susceptibility about this matter, which is no doubt a form of reaction against the unbounded ambition of childhood successfully overcome. I cannot take exception to any other of his critical remarks, though I can find in them many causes for, for controversy. Thus, for example, if I have not pursued the analysis of my own dreams as far as that of others, the cause is only rarely due to timidity 
towards sexual matters. The fact is that I would have had to discover that the secret basis of all the series of dreams had to do with my relations with my father, who had just died. I maintain that I had the right to set a limit to the inevitable exhibition of you I know you share. I have received many testimonies of the interest Monsieur Breton and his friends show for my research, but I am not able to clarify for myself what surrealism is and what it wants. Perhaps I'm not destined to understand it. I am so distant from art. On a related matter, I've just received an article from another Parisian, this time a psychiatrist, a Monsieur Lacan. It appears that his doctoral thesis on paranoia, the st a study of a postal worker, a woman who attempts to stab the actress Huguette Duclos, I have sent him a note of thanks on a postcard. I believe the latter is translating my article on neurotic mechanisms in jealousy, paranoia, and homosexuality, and that Marie has mentioned him as a patient of Levenstein. I do not expect that this will be the last I hear from either of them. Sincerely yours, with kind wishes, your old Freud. Two. An ear. He is the most famous ear of our epoch. He enters the scene with his new techniques to listen, écouter, which starts with hearing, entendre, from the unconscious to the conscious act. And you do need a good ear, you know. Ears were stopped before him. There is a dog, you know the dog. You remember Nipper, named for his unfortunate tendency to nip at the legs of strangers? You know his picture, listening to a phonograph. His master's voice, well, that is a voice to which one is expected to pay attention, at least if not to obey, at least to not to turn a deaf ear to the master's utterance. Yofi, that understanding, exceptional chow, ears pricked up, knowing when 50 minutes were ended, Yofi jumping at the, up on the couch. Things are understood in a profession of silent listening. No master, maître, with occasional punctuation, a shrill bark, a nasty nip, padding to the door, pay attention, wrap things up, or no bark at all, like in the, te in the detective story, The Silence of the Dog in the Nighttime. He is an auditive, you know, a phrase his famous ears overheard muttered in a muted voice from the mouth of Shaku, his master. He simply listens, not bothered about whether his patient is keeping anything in mind. He says, you know, that hysterical fantasies arise from things heard but only understood later. It is the, in the same way as dreams are related to things seen. He says he will never engage in the act of scientific research while involved in the clinical act of listening. He says that he must instead make himself vulnerable and receptive. He says that he must lay himself open to another person. He says he must allow himself to be taken by surprise. He says there must be floating attention, an evenly hovering attention. He is an orifice a listening ear, he is all ears, he lends an ear and everything enters, he pays attention, he is a good ear, he does not have cloth ears, but he does have a tin ear, you know. He has an acoustic atrophy. 
He says he is almost incapable of obtaining any pleasure from music, but nonetheless, in a dream, he hums Figaro's Cavantina on the platform of a railway station, and often, when stroking Yofi, he catches himself humming a melody which, unmusical as he is, he cannot help but recognize as the aria from Don Giovanni, a bond of friendship unites us both. He rebels against being moved by a thing without knowing why he is thus affected. He cannot hear the death drive, but then again, no one can quite make out its mute passage, and all the drives tend to silence anyway, you know. He does not turn a deaf ear, but still he would not, will not submit interpretations to Breton's anthology of dreams. He has nothing to say about these dreams. He reads the scraps of paper thrown over his garden wall in London on which people write their dreams. He says it is always the interpretation of dreams that restores his self-confidence, that here he does not go astray. Listen to syntactical displacements, ellipsis, and pleonym pleonymism, <coughs> hyperbaton or silepsis, regression, repetition, apposition. Listen to semantical condensations, metaphor, catechesis, antonomasia, allegory, metonymy, and synecdoche. Listen, then, to dreams. Three. A shell. From SF's papers. The inner ear, the bony cochlea, is shaped like a snail shell, with two and a half turns housing the membranous labyrinth surrounded by perilymph fluid. The gastropod shell has three major layers secreted by the mantle. The outermost layer is the periostracum, resist resistant to abrasion and which provides shell coloration. The body of the snail touches the innermost smooth layer composed of mother of pearl, resilient and iridescent. The color of the snail shell is oil green, emerald green, mixed with lemon yellow, chestnut brown and yellowish gray but sometimes it is so pale as to be almost white, like an egg. The snail's blood is blue, but that of the common ram's horn snail is red. Its slimy spit leaves a silvery wake. It is a byproduct, an excessive residue. Hermaphrodite, it has both male and female reproductive organs. It is capable of self-fertilization but usually snails copulate with each other. A snail does not have a, a brain, and whatever mind it has is unlikely to have much in common with human consciousness. Yet it learns, it associates, it does not hear, it has no ears. It's a giant foot with a mouth. Of animals, the snail is unmistakably recognizable as a symbol for the female Many of the beasts which are used as genital symbols in mythology and folklore play the same part in dreams. Snails. A dream. The devil, dressed in black, 
in an upright position. He is pointing with his outstretched finger at a gigantic snail. This devil is the demon in a love scene with a girl in a very popular picture. Using a heavy knife, mince garlic to a paste with an eighth of a teaspoon table salt, beat together butter, shallots, garlic paste, parsley, salt and pepper until combined, beat in white wine. Divide half the garlic butter among the snail shells. Stuff one snail into each shell and top snails with the remaining butter. Spread kosher salt in a shallow baking dish and nestle the snails butter side up in salt. Bake the snails until the butter is melted and sizzling, about four to six minutes. Serve immediately. From SF's diary, 19 July, 1938. Deafness. And if we could end on 